0: My big fear was not that Donald Trump was defeated or elected. My big fear was that there would be violence. And there was violence driven by misinformation. and disinformation. We knew that was going to happen. Hello,
1: this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Cameron Hickey, who studies and makes software tools to track and combat mis and disinformation. He's the program director, algorithmic transparency, at National Conference on Citizenship. We talked about what he's been learning about our online information disorder problem and how he came to develop expertise in that area. I learned a lot from Cameron. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Cameron Hickey, disinformation researcher.
0: Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount.
1: Cameron, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. Uh, my name is Cameron Hickey. I'm the program director for algorithmic transparency at the National Conference on Citizenship. I, at the moment, am focused on building technology and supporting the work of civil rights groups, uh, academic researchers and journalists in investigating mis- and disinformation on social media and more broadly on bringing greater transparency to the algorithms that rule our lives. I spent a long time as a journalist um, at the PBS NewsHour, produced news and documentary programming for many different outlets. Yeah, and I have a history in technology, so that uh, bridging journalism and um, my work in building technology is what brings me to the the things I do today.
1: It seems like you've put yourself in a really interesting spot in our society right now. What's going on? Online, in terms of misinformation, in terms of the way information, good and bad, s- spreads, is is so key to so many of the big dilemmas that we have. Really, I kind of want to understand a little bit your path to that place where you are right now. Where did you grow up? What kind of background did you have? I know, I mean, I know that you end up with like a photography degree from Bard College, and that's like the beginning?
0: Just, just because facts are really important to me, I want to make it clear. I do not actually have a degree from Bard College. I worked towards a degree at Bard and left in uh, the latter half of my senior year to join a technology company. So I studied photography. But my background, I grew up in Chicago in the city. I went to, for a period of time, also Whitney Young High School, which is also where former First Lady Michelle Obama went to high school. My family runs a costume business in Chicago and since I was a little kid I lived in the world of costumes, Halloween and, you know, mascots. After Bard College, I entered into the tech world during the first dot-com boom of the late 90s. It was fun and exciting, but it left a little hole for me in terms of like actually doing something important.
1: Well, let me let me just ask you a tiny bit about that. I looked at your LinkedIn and there was a whole series of names of tech enterprises that I never heard of. Maybe I should have Boo and Kotze and D-Word. What were these things? What were you learning along the way there and what were you doing?
0: So Boo.com is, uh, was a, one of the big internet failures of the late 20th century dot com boom. The intention was to be the fashion version, the hip urban fashion version of Amazon.com, but it was um, run into the ground through um, you know much of the same excesses that that many of the .dot com uh, era. I was a lowly web developer essentially. They gave me a funny title, which was web innovator, but I was not. I wasn't a principal at the organization. I just worked there. The D word is a documentary collective. That's a just something I was a member of and friends with the founders of. And Katsi actually was a film production company that produced a series of films. The one that I worked on was a film called Nakoi Katsi, which is the third part of a, the Katsi trilogy directed by Godfrey Reggio. That trilogy of films I consider to be one of my favorite all-time documentaries. I, anyone who's never seen or heard of, Koyanis Katsi ought to see it.
1: You were a developer at Evolving Media Network?
0: The, you know, a, a web shop just a uh, friends from college who developed a web shop. Um, I also was entertaining the prospect of being, you know, a entrepreneur myself, and I developed lots of projects that never sort of materialized.
1: What was Doc Agora?
0: Uh, Doc Agora was a sort of nonprofit collective focused on the documentary film industry. The late, great Peter Wintonic, a documentary filmmaker based in Canada, had founded it, and I worked with him and some others in the documentary film industry, doing work that was at the intersection of documentary film and technology. Um, so we hosted conferences, et cetera.
1: So then you you do a little bit of time at Nova and a fair amount of time at Moyers and PBS NewsHour. What are you spending your time and what expertise are you developing there?
0: Prior to those, I developed a work as an independent documentary filmmaker. I think you've, you've highlighted that maybe I've updated my LinkedIn profile to be perfectly accurate, but, um, I working with my now wife, um, produced several documentary films and then went into the PBS world to continue the, the process of making documentary films in um, those other institutions. I started out working on documentary films that were about, minority communities that face challenges. So the first film I ever made was about the Roma community that lives in Greece. Roma are are otherwise known as, by the derogatory term, gypsies. And even in in a country like Greece, they have lots and lots of Roma and they face significant challenges in that country. Um, Made a film about an indigenous community that lives in the border region between Pakistan and Afghanistan, that is non-Muslim, um, and face challenges and, and, and the uh, potential extinction of their community. I made another film with my wife about the Muslim community in Philadelphia. Then working at on various projects, also actually with my wife at Moyers, looked at a variety of social justice issues, issues around voter ID um, back many years ago, moving on to other sorts of Topics. We we did a big series, I think, for WNET about how Atlantic City got to be the way it is, the sort of rise and fall of Atlantic City and and the challenges that the residents of Atlantic City face, um, as it was for a period of time the foreclosure capital of the country. And then I spent a long time working at PBS. The first PBS News Hour work I did was focused on infrastructure and looking at America's crumbling infrastructure. And that transitioned to a long and fruitful relationship with the science correspondent at PBS NewsHour, which is Miles O'Brien. And I work with Miles O'Brien traveling all over the world, both for the NewsHour and for Nova, primarily looking at science and technology stories um, with a particular focus on um, science and technology stories that have um, a social impact of some kind, right? So we're not just looking at cool, hip technology or, you know, startup tech, but more specifically, you know, a science technology story about why you can't uh, vote online, for example, or how to understand the various disasters that we've seen um, in recent years, including the Hurricane Sandy, uh, mass shootings um, in schools. So rampage killers looking at the Fukushima disaster, looking at the Zika outbreak, looking at the Ebola outbreak all with the lens of science. So critical issues of social importance, but through the lens of science and technology. So I spent a long time doing that. And that kind of leads me in a sense to where, where I am now, which is after the 2016 election, I became particularly interested in understanding how technology and social media influenced the outcome of the election. It's something we'd always been thinking about and looking at, right? We, we understood that in, in 2008, the Obama election had to do with technology. Like that was the first election in which I was using Twitter. But by 2016, something really different had happened. And we were looking at how misinformation, and disinformation, in particular, social media, which was now a massive force, had influenced the outcome of that election. And so I, after the 2016 election, set about building technology. So borrowing from my, my background in the internet startup world to do data journalism around what had happened and what was continuing to take place on social media. And so in order to do some specific reporting for the PBS NewsHour, I started building technology to understand misinformation. Was that
1: fairly entrepreneurial on your part? Were you commissioned to do that? It sounds more like you're, you, you were the driving force In making that happen or how did you negotiate that at your workplace
0: (laughs) it was definitely entrepreneurial i said uh i mean i think that we discussed it you know how do we cover this social media misinformation thing and i said well we've got to figure it out people are saying stuff about it but we don't really understand it very clearly and i think just going and asking these other people to regurgitate what they've already said isn't enough i'll just take a step back and say after covering science for, for, you know, almost a decade, um, one of the big frustrations you often have as a journalist is that the scientists aren't answering the exact same questions that you're asking, right? So half the time when you ask the scientist, is this or that true? They're like, well, we don't really know, or we have to hedge, or we didn't actually look at that. And also half the time, they're like, well, that's kind of an interesting question. I wish I had asked that. I didn't actually study science as an undergrad, but I sort of still had the sort of inquisitive mind, right, to apply the scientific method to the journalism that we did. And so it presented like this unique opportunity to say, well, I want to ask some questions myself instead of relying on a researcher to ask these questions. And that I can actually do this, that I can pull a couple of levers on you know the apis available from facebook or i can build something to scrape information off the internet gave me the opportunity to actually ask some more interesting questions
1: so tell me more detail about something that you built while you were at pbs and what you learned from what you built
0: the way i like to tell this story is we wanted to understand how much misinformation was spreading on facebook after the election, right? The, the election had taken place. We wanted to know either before or at that moment in early 2017, how much misinformation was spreading. And I started out by looking at all of the different things that people had cited as being misinformation. And I looked at the places where they appeared on Facebook. And as I did that manually, right, just browsing and, and, and sort of you know digging through what I saw on Facebook, I discovered something that was common to all of these different pages that had been accused of sharing mis and disinformation. And the thing I discovered was that my own grandmother had liked all of those pages. And oh so my. that was like this really disturbing realization, <laughs> both that my grandmother was a fan of all of these things and that she seemed to be really good at identifying all of them, right? Like literally hundreds of pages that I looked at on Facebook My grandmother was a fan of them as soon as I arrived there. And I knew that because she was my friend on Facebook.
1: Out of curiosity, what are her politics?
0: Um, She was pro-Trump conservative Republican, lives lives in Indiana. Yep. Um, And so once I had this realization that my grandmother liked a lot of this, um, what we came to call junk news, I then looked more deeply at her profile. And what I discovered was she'd liked a bunch of other pages on Facebook. And when I started looking at those, I recognized that they also were purveyors of this same junk news, but they weren't cited in the other journalism about what um, was circulating on missing disinformation. So it turned out my grandmother was actually quite good. And I don't, didn't know why at this moment, but for some reason, the things my grandmother liked on Facebook, was a was a really useful investigative tool for finding mis and disinformation on the platform and so then I had a hypothesis I bet that there are other people like my grandmother it's not just her and so I started building a tool and at that point the tool was basically let me aggregate all of the people like my grandma right so let me look at given this list of a thousand Facebook pages that have been sharing missing disinformation. Let me look at who else likes them, and then let me look at what else they like. And whatever things bubble to the top as the most popular from this audience are also likely to be missing and disinformation. And it turned out that was that was a hypothesis I had. It turned out when I collected all of that data, hundreds of thousands of Facebook pages, and then sorted them by what was the most popular, everything at the top of the list was more of this junk. It was more junk news. Hyperpartisan, partisan sensational, misleading, sometimes straight-out fake content. On the right. Almost all on the right, but definitely not exclusively. And in fact, we found several examples where it was it was almost identical, but on the left. I've had two
1: conversations in the last two days with friends of mine where when we steer into the area of politics, I can hear where they're getting their news. I don't even know if they're aware of how obvious it is, but the things that are being pushed, the bogus stories that are out there right now, it's just bleeding out of them in a, almost a naive way. This is the world we live in now, isn't it?
0: In general, people get more of their information from their social feed, right? More of their information from their mobile devices. Um, we're not all sitting down and watching the um, seven o'clock or 11 o'clock news or,
1: or the PBS news hour
0: or the PBS news hour. I mean, the PBS news hour has a solid and growing audience, which is, which is heartening. However, it's still, you know, it's still peanuts compared to the other stuff that's on television, not in a news world, but in the entertainment world.
1: So continue your story. So you've identified this group of people starting with, you know, with your grandmother has been a key hub, in helping discover, where do you take it from there?
0: This set of insights, the first thing it said to me was, this is a way bigger problem than people have identified. A lot of people were talking about, here are the hundred websites or hundred Facebook pages where this problematic content appears. And I had found thousands and I had only found thousands cause that's as far down the list I had started reviewing, right? But it was clear that the problem was larger. But the why wasn't exactly clear right then, right? There were a lot of uh, open questions about that. And and one of the most important journalists in this space, Craig Silverman, who was uh, then at BuzzFeed, now at ProPublica, had done some deep digging into this, right? So one of the first things was he had identified this pattern that fake news stories seem to be more popular on Facebook than uh, legitimate news stories. And that was the seed for my investigation. Then later, he had identified what at least one subset of the Facebook pages that were producing this content where they came from. They were a bunch of teenagers in Macedonia who were producing this content, not because they cared at all about American politics, but because they recognized that you create sensational content, you buy ads on Facebook, selling it to people or selling something like it to people, and then they'll click on it and you can generate ad revenue because they come to your website and you get Google ad revenue. He identified a bit of it, but it was clear that there was more to it than that, right? And so I started digging and investigating on my own as well. One of the key insights that I identified was there were certain sites that had mirror image sites on the left and the right. And with a little bit of extra digging, you know, looking into the source code of the websites and the unique identifiers they contained, it was possible to see, actually, these mirror image websites, I mean, they literally looked identical. except one was red, one was blue. They had different content, right? The, the substance was different. It was pro-Trump, pro-Clinton, et cetera. But they were clearly owned by the same person. And so digging, 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 figure out who they are owned by. Um, and in one of those cases, we found the person that they were owned by was a young man in California and I figured out what his name was. And then I searched on Skype and I found his, you know, Skype username and I called him on Skype and said, I'm really interested. I looks like you run these websites. I'm trying to understand like how they work, how you make your money, why you do it. And after quite a long time, I convinced him to, you know, do an on-camera interview for the PBS news hour.
1: Was it strictly financial in his case? I mean, it seems pretty
0: amoral. So it was a combination of things. He started out on the right. He did hold conservative values, and that's where he started. But he also then was a profiteer. You know, he started out trying to use what he understood as other people's political ideologies as a way to make money off of them. First by selling t shirts, then by building websites that, you know, he could make ad revenue off of. But then he recognized, well, if I'm making all this money from these people, why am I leaving half the money on the table? And he, you know, went on the other side too. I don't think he set out to share false stories or to lie to people. I just don't think he cared very much, you know? And what I learned through this process and why I started then using the term junk news to describe what we were working on instead of fake news was that the fakeness or the falseness or or truthiness of it wasn't the most important thing, right? It was whether or not it engaged people irrespective of exactly how factual it was and that lots of the content can still be damaging even if it isn't technically false. And isn't
1: there something about being untethered to the truth that gives you more opportunity to be effective in in driving traffic, right? It feels like there's an advantage in that environment, not necessarily being stuck in the truth.
0: Certainly, although I think that there's only a few people who really, I mean, few in the hundreds of thousands, but I think that that in the end, like being tethered or untethered to the truth isn't actually that relevant. It's really just about like being sensational and, and really playing on the power of motivated reasoning, right? Whatever statement you make when viewed through a partisan lens means something more than it does on its own divorced from that partisanship.
1: So was there further trajectory of that particular piece? Like, do you know what happened to that guy? Did you follow up on that story? What, where did it end up?
0: We actually produced a series for the PBS news hour, four parts in one of them we interviewed my grandmother. Um so so we we actually featured her in it. In another one uh, we we featured the, this character from California who had produced these two mirror image websites. We also at the time were the first news organization in the aftermath of the election and the, in the aftermath of Facebook setting up a broader effort to improve the quality of the news feed. Facebook, we convinced them to let us inside and talk to all the people who are working on the newsfeed itself. So we, we interviewed and talked to the you know, the people on the ground at Facebook improving newsfeed quality and a series of other stories with experts. So we, we produced that series to try and get at broadly how junk news was playing a role in what was happening um, in our political discourse um, in the aftermath of the 2016 election.
1: Were you paying attention to other researchers and entities that were working on the same problem? Like I had the sense that I don't know that media matters was looking into some of similar things and, and that there are other entrepreneurs and and reporters at work and, and academic institutions and things like that. What was the state of what you were observing that was mobilizing?
0: Yeah so so at the time. As a responsible journalist, I probably interviewed 100 people on the phone, you know, in in the process of doing that, including numerous academics, numerous other journalists, different folks from different types of institutions. I don't know that at that time I interviewed anyone at Media Matters specifically, but um, I did talk to quite a few experts in every facet of this, right? So... For the piece that we did, we ended up interviewing, you know, Craig Silverman, the BuzzFeed journalist. We interviewed several different researchers. I talked to so many on background um, and I had a, a broad sense of where things were. It's funny because in 2017, you know, throughout that year, it was still pretty nascent, you know, what what was happening in the space. Like things were forming at the time. People were holding conferences on the subject. Lots of people were starting to criticize Facebook in particular, and their role in the problem. But I think that we were still primitive in our thinking about it. But actually, at that time, one of the people that I reached out to early on to interview was a woman named uh, Dr. Claire Wardle, who was running an institution called First Draft News, who had written sort of a, here's the seven types of mis- and disinformation, and was, was an expert in that. We ended up not interviewing her for the piece I think because of the nature of the structure of what we had done, but she's one of the foremost experts on that and has been for a while. Um, And we actually developed a friendship. After finalizing and producing that series, um, I talked more directly with her about how the technology that we built that supported the research and investigation for our journalism actually had broader applications. And I wanted to find ways to leverage the fact that we had done something there that could have broader applications and so that sort of is what started my journey out of day-to-day journalism work and into this broader ecosystem of misinformation investigation
1: do you have the sense that what's going on online in this misinformation area is changing results of elections is it favoring one side over the other do you have a, a sort of a partisan view of like who's winning that over time?
0: I think that the efforts to combat mis- and disinformation are moving the needle to an extent on what the platforms do, um, those platforms that are beholden to public scrutiny anyway. And so things are changing there. I think that what's happening in the world of mis- and disinformation is Changing the minds of or enlightening policymakers, predominantly on the left, but but more broadly, I think it is giving new insights to policymakers that help them think about how we deal with regulating social media and the internet. I have felt for a while disheartened that I don't think that our work is actually moving the needle with respect to solving the problem, because the problem keeps evolving and metastasizing you know, faster than we can move. And I think that in the lead up to the 2020 election, a lot of effort was poured into, you know, millions of dollars on the part of news organizations, on the part of academic research, and as well, but to a lesser extent, in the part of, you know, civil rights organizations, um, trying to combat misinformation. disinformation. And if what your goal was, was to defeat Donald Trump, Theoretically, you could argue that that money was well spent and the effort succeeded. If your goal was to actually change how much people believe in mis- or disinformation, I think you only have to look at January 6 to say, no, we failed miserably. And for those of us who've been working on this, we could tell you back at the beginning of the summer of 2020 that what happened on January 6 was going to happen, you know? If not that exactly, you know we all said that that was our big fear. My big fear was not that Donald Trump was defeated or elected. My big fear was that there would be violence and there was violence, whether that violence was from the left or from the right, that there would be political violence driven by misinformation, and disinformation. We knew that was going to happen. I feel as though we are in a, such a different place than I had hoped we would be back in 2019. I after PBS went to uh, the Shorenstein Center at Harvard's Kennedy School and spent just about two years there working on mis- and disinformation in the context of the 2018 midterms, primarily. And after that, in the middle of 2019, left and founded the project that I'm working at now, the Algorithmic Transparency Institute. And when we founded that, I had one set of goals for what um, we were going to do, and I had some one set of expectations. But that was, you know, as it was for the entire planet, thrown into chaos by the pandemic, right? And I think that the pandemic really was the most significant you know, chaotic element thrown into the mix around missing disinformation. Um, and it completely changed the landscape.
1: Well, tell me a little bit about that time at Harvard. I interviewed Nico Mealy, who I think was probably running that, the center while you were there didn't talk much about this particular thing, but he's very interested in tools in the tech and journalism intersection. What were some of the projects that you got involved in there and how did they go?
0: So the the project that we ran was called the Information Disorder Lab. Information disorder was a term coined by Claire Wardle um, to try and describe using different language the idea of the broad challenge that we face from mis- and disinformation, and the way that she often describes it as mis-dis- and malinformation, information disorder being a broader way of thinking about what previously been called fake news, but we don't like to use the word fake news. And so the Information Disorder Lab was established as kind of a pilot project to bring a team of people together who would monitor and investigate uh, mis- and disinformation on social media, um, would build tools, um, you know, technology and infrastructure For collecting data and for analyzing um, social media, and then to share those learnings in as close to real time as possible with a large constituency, at that time being a network of newsrooms, large and small, and the social media platforms themselves who were trying to combat the problem. We hired a team of research reporters. I helped to manage that team and to manage the development of the technology infrastructure. We built new tools based on what I had built previously to collect data and identify here are the key topics in the 2018 midterm elections. Here are the key players. Let's have everyone monitor. Let's collect all the instances of problematic content that we find, um, analyze it, label it, um, share out via alerts what we think are the most significant things, Um, back to newsrooms, back to platforms so that they can use that insight to inform the actions that they take on the side of the platforms that might be taking down content um, that may be modifying their policies on the side of newsrooms that will be writing stories or having context around their stories so that they were sure how to do what they were going to do at the very beginning of that project we held a big conference and one one of the notable memories i have was we had you know 100 journalists from across the country and and was two-day conference In one of the breaks, I sat and talked to two New York Times reporters, and they said, we're thinking about doing an explainer about this odd internet phenomenon that we've discovered called QAnon. And I said, dear God, please do not write a New York Times story about QAnon. That would be such a bad idea. We really have to avoid giving oxygen to this like absurd, bizarre conspiracy theory. I know about it. You know about it, because we're thinking about this. But no one else needs to know about this because it's just toxic and dangerous. That was like a tough battle to have with a journalist, being a journalist as well, to say, no, you should not report on this. You know, yes, it's crazy. Yes, it's weird. Yes, it's a little scary. But you really shouldn't do it because that's all they want. Their, their biggest win is if the New York Times writes about it. At that time, you know, and for a couple months later, they didn't write about it. But then, of course, a few months after that, what happens? People hold up cue signs at a Donald Trump rally. Those cue signs are spread on social media and on mainstream media. And then everyone was essentially obligated to write about it, right? And so that that was the beginning. And even then it was just small potatoes compared to what happened in 2020. Um, But we were doing lots of things like that, right? We were sort of making ourselves aware of what all the key conspiracy theories were, what the key trends were, and trying to provide advice, insight to all of the important stakeholders at the time. I think the project was overall a really valuable learning experience and a pilot, and it certainly informs all the work that I do now. Um, One of the big lessons that we learned is there's a lot of challenges to work inside of an academic uh, context. Um, There are fundraising challenges, There are, despite the broad ideas around academic freedom that are implied by working at a university, especially a particularly prestigious one, they are also pretty risk averse institutions. And this kind of work presents all kinds of risks, right? It presents legal risks. It presents ethical risks. It presents political risks. Those ones are frequently difficult to overcome.
1: Well, tell me a little about the National Conference on Citizenship. What is that exactly, and how did that come to be a place where you would put your program?
0: So the, the National Conference on Citizenship is, and I hope I've got the numbers right, but like a more than 70-year-old congressionally chartered nonprofit that's focused on improving civic life in America. Um, the way I think about it is improving um, our capacity to be good citizens and, uh, and focusing on understanding and expanding what it means to be a citizen. Over the years, that's predominantly been focused literally on a conference, on an annual national citizenship conference. It also has involved many different projects over time, um, focused on applying new ways of thinking and technology, for example, to understanding the quality of civic life. So one of the key outputs that uh, NCOC has produced over the years is um, called a civic health index. And so they'll analyze a city or a state or some other community or region to understand the, the, the quality of its civic health. Back in 2019, Nicomeli, who you mentioned earlier, became the interim CEO at the National Conference on Citizenship with a specific vision to sort of expand the mandate of the institution. And so to look at new ways of understanding how we look at civic life and how we improve it. And so we had you know become friends and colleagues um, over the previous several years and and I had described my interest in more broadly understanding how discourse on social e- media impacts our civic discourse, right So we know that the, social media has essentially become the public square, right? And so if we don't understand how this new emerging public square owned by private companies is influencing our civic discourse, we're gonna have a big problem in influencing the trajectory of citizenship going forward, right? And so our work, the work of the Algorithmic Transparency Institute is focused on that foundational understanding What are people saying? Why are people saying it? And how are these black box algorithms that determine who sees what impacting the outcomes of our discourse?
1: I think the title algorithmic transparency, while it's you've just explained it and it's fairly evident, is probably a little bit of a barrier to understanding to the average person right off the bat. Explain that a
0: little bit. So every technology platform that we interact with, from all the social media platforms like YouTube and Facebook, to the commerce platforms like Uber and Amazon, to all of the other systems in our society, like our insurance or our banking systems, use algorithms to make decisions. They make decisions about what credit we get, what products we're presented with, or what kind of content we are recommended, right? So, Algorithms are written by people, but they are essentially operated autonomously by, by computer programs, by software and hardware. And so we don't really understand, even the people who have made them, don't really understand how they work and what impact they have on the people that are uh, experiencing them. Great journalism has been done to demonstrate that even the algorithms learn how to be racist, for example right? Learn how to redline people, even when the companies that are offering, you know, uh, insurance or banking products aren't trying to be racist. We need to bring greater transparency to these algorithms if we are going to expose the potential injustice that they perpetrate, right? If we are going to understand the new ways that they are wreaking havoc on our society.
1: I'm thinking about an article I read of yours about TikTok, about how the algorithms there make it a platform for up propaganda and potentially moving people down the road towards violence in certain circumstances. Can you explain how a seemingly innocuous video sharing platform that lots of people use can be hijacked in such a way?
0: Sure. TikTok lets people share videos of themselves, right? That's, you normally it would be, you know, teenagers dancing to the, whatever the hot new song is. Every new video that you look at on TikTok in the default interface is one that is recommended to you based on all the things that the algorithm has learned about you. So every action you take on that platform, following in other accounts, liking videos, commenting on videos, watching and re-watching videos are all signals that are added to a giant database about your behavior. And then the next video that you see is based on looking at all those behaviors that you've presented in the past, using them to score all of the videos in the TikTok video database and say, what is the video that you are most likely to be interested in next? Right? And so... That process happens continuously. The algorithm learns from every new action you take and is recommending something new to you.
1: What are they maximizing? My sense is they're not trying to maximize anything bad, right? They're trying to maximize your time there.
0: For-profit companies, in the end, they're trying to maximize profit, right? And profit, generally speaking, comes from ad revenue. More broadly, with these kinds of sites, we think it's time on site. Right. Yes. So so yes. It's it's your time. It's your attention. It's your the likelihood that you're going to return to that um, app again at a later moment in time. So they're engineering for that, and at the same time, the content is coming from content creators. Right. So individual users are making videos, and whether or not anyone chooses to make another video is based on the feedback that they get right? So you can A-B test on a platform like this, right? You can make two identical videos, one wearing a red shirt, one wearing a blue shirt. And based on the level of engagement you get, the likes, shares, follows, comments, whatever, that will give you an indication of what you ought to do with your next video. So on the one side, you've got incentives for the audience, and on the other side, you've got incentives for the creators. And what we can see is, I've personally observed numerous examples of this. When people make hyperpartisan partisan content on that platform, that content tends to perform really well with other people who share those political beliefs, right? And so there's this sort of feedback loop, right? If a teenager makes a video talking about how scared they are that the Democrats are going to take away their guns, and that video gets 10 times the number of likes that them dancing to some hip-hop song gets, And the incentive for them to make another video that's about politics goes through the roof, right?
1: And not only their incentive, but everybody who's watching what does well is copying what does well and so on. Yes.
0: TikTok is a fantastic version of the feedback loop, right? It, It helps to amplify both sides of the incentive equation in a way that makes it, very likely that the next thing that you will see is more like whatever kind of thing you saw last and the most sensational, often um, rage inducing things become those things. It's really, really good at it. So back when I um, wrote and released that piece, we were right in the aftermath in a sense of the January 6th attacks and trying to understand political violence and polarization, right? Today, The same feed that I have on TikTok is filled almost exclusively with fervent anti-vax content, right? So people who are talking about conspiracy theories, fear-mongering, and everything else related to the COVID-19 vaccine. That's a product of two things. One, that there's strong overlap between the um, Stop the Steal, QAnon, and um, pro-Trump movements and the anti-vax movement. And that I have, because I'm an investigator of this content, I have given the algorithm positive signals about anti-vax content, because now I'm actively working on investigating it, trying to understand it. So I do specific things on the platform that tell it, give me more anti-vax content. So it just keeps evolving, right? And every decision I make every day, in my capacity as an investigator, is producing more of that content. But for people who actually are interested and believe it, it does the same thing.
1: Can you talk a little bit about what you were seeing in the run-up to January 6th? What kind of content was leading people to go there and plan it?
0: I won't say I saw anything specific in the planning, right? I think the planning coordination side of things is really still a big open question. I think January 6th was more organic than coordinated. However, what I saw in the six months leading up to January 6th was... From the moment mail-in voting started to become a uh, issue of concern or focus, lots of anxiety videos about mail-in voting, lots of distrust and stoking the big lie.
1: And was that because Trump provoked that or did he see that and take advantage of that?
0: I think that chicken and egg question is hard to answer. It's this echo chamber thing. I don't know where the first version of it came from. I'm sure that the many conservatives voiced anxiety about mail-in voting and, you know, same-day registration and all of these other things that came to be associated with the broader thing we call stop the steal. You know, it came from both sides. What happened on TikTok in particular was you got many individuals citing their own particular concerns, right? They hold their phone up to their face, just like when you take a selfie and they talk right into their phone and they say why they're concerned about it. And so maybe you care about what Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell or whatever Kamala Harris or Joe Biden have to say about this, but seeing another regular person who you can really understand talking about those issues resonates a lot more, right? Especially if it's another person that looks like you or sounds like you. Um, And so there was just a ton of that kind of organic content, raising concerns about the legitimacy of the election many, many months before it. On top of that, this concern that was essentially, they're going to steal it, so we need to have our guns ready, right? The number of videos I saw with people not saying anything, but just showing their guns, you know, showing them at a shooting range or showing like, you're opening the door to a gun closet or just a handgun in the hand and cocking it. Like those videos just appeared over and over and over again. So if you're flipping through TikTok and you're seeing I love Donald Trump waving flag, I'm scared of mail-in voting, and then a gun, like over and over and over again, right? Dial yourself back to like the ultraviolence videos from, you know, Clockwork Orange. You know, that's like what it felt like.
1: It's another world. You said earlier that in a certain sense, not January 6th, but something violent was predictable. What do you think, given what you're seeing right now, is the next thing that's sort of predictable?
0: Well, it's interesting. In our monitoring of misinformation and disinformation in these spheres, we've observed that things go in cycles. And those cycles are pegged to what we would otherwise call mainstream news cycles, right? The things that most people are talking about. So in 2018, we observed that whenever the main news cycle was dying down, people would start talking about like the people that Hillary and Bill Clinton had killed, you know, things like random stuff like that, right? So whenever you saw those kinds of memes, we knew that there wasn't anything interesting for people to talk about because they would go back to that kind of thing, right? But during 2018, there were lots of different topics that, that did capture people's attention. But then all of a sudden... Every single corner stopped talking about anything, and the only thing they were talking about was Christine Blasey Ford and um, future Justice Kavanaugh, right? Because that was the thing that captured all of the mainstream media attention. It also captured all the attention then. In the aftermath of the uh, January 6th, for a while thereafter, there was a lot of stuff up, you know, all the way through the inauguration, and then through, I forget which date it was, but there was some other date, you know, a few weeks after that, that was still pegged as maybe Donald Trump's actually going to still become president. Each of those dates, that was the stuff that you saw. Uh, Now, it's all anti-vax stuff still, although that has, and there was a lot more of it earlier on. Each new news cycle event, such as like the Fauci emails, drives a little bit more. But I have observed, and, and with the colleagues that I work with, we've observed that we're starting to enter another one of those lulls. I think that I've seen a couple of videos coming up about Trump being inaugurated in August, which we know is driven based on news stories, et cetera. But I think we're in a lull right now and we're kind of anxious to see what is likely to percolate next.
1: If you watch the sequence of movies that come out in Hollywood, right? Some make it big, some don't make it big. And they make it big partially because of good promotion. They make it big partially because of good content great movies sometimes do well. It's it's almost like this is another form of entertainment that people are constantly generating stuff that might be interesting. And if it gets the right confluence of positive factors, like a receptive audience, like timing, like good promotion, then it makes it big. It bubbles to the top. It gets all the attention for a while. It drives the change in people's attitudes.
0: Definitely, you can't always predict. you can certainly see some things that seem like they're obviously going to resonate with the community and that they're very likely to work. I remember the day that Epstein died, and i I immediately talked to several colleagues at other institutions. And I was like this is a this is a problem for us because this is basically like it it's all the evidence for all of these conspiracy theories like, laid Chum in the water, yeah. Um, and, and obviously, that it, it was very easy to recognize that that minute we knew what was going to happen there before it happened. You know.
1: Yeah, and some people are professionals in taking advantage of these moments, right, or creating these moments, including the former president.
0: Yes, and yeah, and, and and many others, you know, that are lesser known to the general public, but are certainly um, you know popular within these circles. But actually, I wanted to say something I think is important here, which is. A key insight for me about the current phenomenon of misinformation and disinformation is that it is a mistake to assume that people are foolish, naive, oblivious, not paying enough attention, and that that's why this stuff happens. Because what we see is the most potent content is content that's driven by a deep investigative urge that matches that entertainment Hunger that you alluded to earlier, right? People enjoy digging in and being detectives and investigating. Hell, I do. That's why I was a journalist, and that's why I do this work now.
1: And that's why QAnon, for example, has done so well. It's this massive multiplayer puzzle, right?
0: Exactly. And and the same with with uh, vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaccine like there are so many things to read and look at and dig into, rabbit holes to go down, that you know, the places where it overlaps with conspiracy and the places where it's just about paranoia and fear. It's all about learning more and investing time in, in investigating.
1: And if you're inclined to be doubtful about vaccine, not an unreasonable position in the context of a lot of vaccines, you can find plenty of reason to be scared of it. You can concoct your own reasoning around edge cases and persuade yourself.
0: Our realities are built around our experiences and the experiences of the others immediately adjacent to us, right? They are not built on an objective observation of all the data and understanding its scale and statistical significance. That's just not how we look at the world, right? One person's individual story about this happened to me. Now the Moderna vaccine causes more side effects than the Pfizer vaccine. You know, like that's from N of one. <laughs> There's no other way for us to operate.
1: And it's easy to become suspicious of science because science is a work in progress and they don't get everything right. They just have at least a mechanism for carefully trying to discover if they, if they do over time.
0: I just want to add at this point, it is really important to say that the vaccines are safe.
1: And they're making people not get sick <laughs> by the hundreds of millions, right?
0: And so it's it's important in the work that I do to always make sure we, like, we have to understand and acknowledge that um, medicine as a, a particular subset of science broadly is a tricky one to always have faith in, right? And faith is an important term to use here because lots of medicine is as much art as it is science. Almost everyone has an experience of, I have a health problem and you go to see a doctor and you don't get a definitive answer. You wanted one and you can't get one. Um, Or if you try and investigate that on your own on the internet, you find way too many paths that all lead to cancer, even though that's clearly not what the problem is.
1: Tell me about your current work. What are you up to right now?
0: Our work today is focused on addressing the broad challenge that is missing and disinformation, and we are looking at how do we build resilience to mis- and disinformation given the recognition that there is no silver bullet solution, right? There is no um, one act that government or that platforms or whatever can take to solve this problem. It will continue to evolve and metastasize. It will impact people on both sides of the political aisle. How do we reduce the harm that it causes over the long term? And so a hypothesis we have now is that everyone needs to participate in addressing the problem. We can't expect a paternalistic solution from regulation um, or platform policy. Instead, we need to teach people how to recognize and be resilient to it. And so we're working with, at the moment, a small selection of civil rights nonprofits that we're planning to grow into a really large coalition that engage from their community-based organization on down to the grassroots to say, this is what mis- disinformation looks like. This is why it's potent. This is how you can recognize it. This is why you need to be personally responsible and consider it your civic duty to look for it, investigate it, report it, and respond to it. And by working with organizations training their staff and getting their staff to train their membership and their volunteers to become active participants in the investigating, collecting, monitoring, and reporting of this stuff, we will, over time, build cognitive resilience. Because it's one thing to say, anything you hear about vaccines and microchips is bullshit. It's another thing to say, here are the 25 different ways that people are spreading conspiracy theories about vaccines and you, we don't know what the 26th is going to be but if you know what the first 25 are you understand broadly speaking what the tactics are you'll be in a better position to recognize number 26 when it happens a week from now in Spanish in South Florida not you know where i am in english in Massachusetts and so by giving people those tools and providing a a incentive that matches with the other incentives that people have for political engagement or civic engagement, right? This is your responsibility and by doing it, you're doing your part. Um, we think that we can help to build a community resistance to misinformation. disinformation.
1: So we need to vaccinate the public in a whole other way as well.
0: Yes. The inoculation is not just about the individual messages, but about the tactics, the strategies, and also recognizing just as it is not, you're not only keeping yourself safe by getting the COVID-19 vaccine, you're making your whole community safer. Taking that same idea of community responsibility and translating it to the process of combating misinformation. disinformation.
1: You haven't really said much about the role of foreign state actors in this. People are saying, a lot of people are saying, as Trump would say, that uh, Russia, Iran, etc., are trying to disrupt our society and other societies using these kind of tactics. To what degree are you seeing that as part of this? You've sort of steered more towards the junk science, the Macedonians that are doing it for profit. Do you see this as a big problem too?
0: There are many in the community I work in who are specifically focused on the foreign interference side of things. Um, Since my first engagement with this stuff, I have steered clear of that side for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's very hard to identify, right? Like the covert actions of the internet research agency are covert and it's hard to detect them, right? Some entities are, are slowly able to unmask bits and pieces, but if that entity is doing a good job, probably there are new operations we can't detect. So saying definitively this is or isn't foreign interference, I find to be really challenging. I think that whether it is or isn't foreign interference is irrelevant to the impact on regular people, right? I talked about my grandmother much earlier, right? When I interviewed her, we used the Facebook tool that told you whether or not you had liked any internet research agency pages. And sure enough, she had liked three of them. But my grandmother had liked over 1,000 pages, and the other 997 of them weren't internet research agency pages, right? And so. And, and and versions of that scale are what we found over and over again, right? How much money did, are we able to attribute to the Internet Research Agency's spending in the 2016 election? A couple hundred thousand dollars. The one guy in California that we interviewed spent a couple million dollars on ads on Facebook. Just the one guy. And there were hundreds of guys like that guy. So my concern is about the scale. And to me, the scale is, you know a fraction of what it is on the domestic side or on the profiteer side or whatever. That's the first thing. The second thing is what the foreign agents are doing is a reflection of what we are interested in and what we are doing, right? And so they're only going to pump content towards us that they're already observing works.
1: It's the vulnerabilities that we have as a society, the things... That we don't have right here that makes us vulnerable to getting all riled up whether it's race or inequality or problems with vaccines
0: absolutely well and i also think you know just as i'm thinking now one of the risks with spending too much time concerned with foreign interference is it removes a little bit of the responsibility that we have if we think it's just somebody else interfering. But it also, in a sense, amplifies what I would argue was one of the biggest conspiracy theories on the left, right? We talk a lot about stop the steal and and all of the other things that Donald Trump has done. But Donald Trump's Russia collusion story, in the end, seems pretty clear it essentially was more conspiracy theory than fact, right? There's lots of little bits of facts sprinkled in there, but that Donald Trump was an agent of, you know, Vladimir Putin, that didn't really pan out. Like all the data that we have was all circumstantial around that. And so that we've never really acknowledged that, like the left media ecosystem and most political people on the left, you know, spent a lot of time and money and, you know, heartache on that particular conspiracy theory. Like, it's really right up there with what we've seen on the right. And, and every time we talk about foreign interference now, we're kind of like re-engaging with that conspiracy theory a little bit, when that's really not the big problem.
1: There was a bit of a difference there. You know, we had a lot of connections with Trump and Russia, and a lot of him explicitly welcoming their interference. And, you know, and his campaign manager, working with them. And it's more a question of what scale we can interpret that on than having made it up out of whole cloth, right? So I'm, I'm a little sensitive to the way you put that.
0: When we look at things through the lens of our partisanship, it's really easy to rationalize one thing over the other. One's crazy. One, oh, it seems like it makes sense. And when you recognize that, It makes it much easier to understand how people who otherwise don't seem very crazy believe in all this shit. Yeah.
1: Are you um, more hopeful or more fearful about where we're going?
0: More fearful. There is a lot further to fall at the moment. And I think that all signs point towards less capacity to address the problem. Frankly, building on what I was just saying, we still live in this hyperpartisan space, and that hyperpartisanship is something that both sides are guilty of, right? And the the way that that manifests is in different ways, but the result is we're not building any bridges between these two hyperpartisan factions in our country um, and more broadly across the world, and so. The likelihood that there is less objective news in the future, that there is less space where people agree on objective realities, that seems like it's only growing to me. There's very little evidence that we're doing anything else to actually stop that. I look at the work that we do as an attempt to build those bridges, but we, unfortunately, it's a lot harder to find entities that are not progressive focused on this stuff. We're working hard to do so because I think we won't succeed unless we do, but it's, it's very hard to find them.
1: I don't know much about it, but I think I've read that some countries, uh, maybe some Scandinavian countries have really worked to do that kind of education of their population to protect them against kind of the political disinformation that, that Eastern Europe has really struggled with. Are you aware of that? Is there something that are, that are federal government, our state governments, our, you know, our big, big institutions should be doing to protect this country that they're not doing?
0: I feel like we're stuck in a place where those governing institutions aren't capable of doing so, right? You only look at things like, you know, legislation for against the 1619 project or, you know, critical race theory to recognize that people are they're, they're weaponizing education and regulations around education in ways that aren't productive. And so anything on the other side would be seen as equally partisan, even if it wasn't. Um, so I think that that's a problem. I'm not sure to what extent you can compare what happens in a Scandinavian country that is so much smaller and um, so much less diverse than, than a culture like ours. I do think that there's a recognition that work needs to be done and that there's more people trying to do the work. Like January 6th was a horrible moment for our country, but it also was an eye-opening moment for a lot of people who didn't really believe things were as bad as they are. And so there's a lot more people who are invested in trying to avoid such a thing happening in the future. And so I think there may be more money or more willingness but I think there's a big hill to climb before we actually start seeing the dividends from people's interest in it.
1: Boy, there's a whole lot of other things I could ask you about, but I feel like I've presumed on quite a bit of your time. Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have that you'd like to answer?
0: You asked some questions that I don't think I answered in all the ways that are important. So one of the things that I think, wh- where does this information live or why doesn't you know Congress regulating Facebook solve the problem? So something about that um, that I think it's important to recognize is that the internet's global and no matter what a platform like Facebook or Google or Twitter does, there will be new spaces, Hyperpartisan people including those within my own family use less Facebook than they used to and more Telegram and, you know, Parler and MeWe than they used to. And the, extent to which we're going to be able to play whack-a-mole is really the next frontier here. You know, we spent a lot of time talking after 2016 about Facebook. People still don't spend enough time, but at least a little bit more talking about Google today. But Telegram is, you know, a massive platform that we're not spending enough time talking about what's going on there. Obviously, all of the closed networks are at big risk. And whatever platform somebody else is cooking up today that none of us have heard of yet that will appear in the next, um, you know, several months or year, that is in no way controlled by the, you know, amero infrastructure that is Amazon and, you know, Facebook and Apple or whatever, is, is where the real risks lie. We're not spending enough time talking about that yet. And that's where the frontier is now, like, you know, regulation be damned.
1: Boy, there's a lot of food for thought in this time we've spent together. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's an honor. Anything else you want to say?
0: No, thank you so much for having me on.
1: That was Cameron Hickey. He is at ncoc.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.